Just uh, absolutely humble to see you guys here tonight. You know, um, the world has a lot of places where they can go and be together. But isn't it great to be here? You know? Isn't it great to look around at some friendly faces and people that you've never met? But there's like this sense of, here I don't need to look like something to be approved because it's Christ who approves me by His grace and by nothing that I've done. Are you guys with me? Look, I, I, I've been burdened by something uh, here recently. And I, how, how are you guys doing? And, and I, I don't mean that in a, in a trite way, right? In a, like a, yeah, we're fine, and we all start doing jumping jacks and stuff. But, like, how are you doing the past few weeks, we've been studying the Scripture and diving through some deep theological things. But can we just agree that theology is theology? It teaches us the view of God. And the point of the understanding of the view of God is that as He reforms our view of Him, that it affects our life eternally. By His means, by His measure, that a view of Him causes hearts. And so I ask how you're doing to say, look, the point of this isn't to come and just feed from the buffet and experience some songs that, you know, or hear some words that you, you know, are better for life. No, no. The point to come here together is to do exactly what we just sang. Christ, look, we have no, we have no other hope anywhere. And so we're here, just like when we're at our jobs or when we're with our family or when we're all by ourselves. In our, we're here to experience the fullness of you, to get a bigger picture of who you are in the hopes that by your grace we'll walk out of here reflecting the gospel. And so, so look, when we study the scriptures or theology or doctrine, whatever it is, The point of doing that is that the Spirit might work in our life, send us out of this room to be reflections of Christ to the world. And so if we're coming together and we're just stirring one another and, you know, figuratively tickling one another with nice songs or good words or high fives or hugs, we're missing what the church is. The church is the bride of Christ which He'll return for to take as His. And in the meantime, we're waiting patiently to see Him face to face. Amen? So look, I, how are you doing? You know? And, and the great thing is that no matter how wretched, sinful, unexcited our lives have been today, could it be that things could change right now? I was telling the guys earlier before the service that, and I think we've already seen that, uh, there's a difference between expecting and anticipation. Uh, All day today I've just been expecting God to do something big in our lives. So let's just take a second and in your own way, let's pray for God to move, for Him to do something tonight, for Him to grab us, shake us. Let's, Let's take a second and pray. God, You and You alone right now, move in our hearts. Draw us to Yourself. Give us a bigger picture of who you are. In your awesome name, amen. So you guys ready to go?
Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Uh, if, you've just, if you're just joining us tonight, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. It's an amazing book. It's written by a doctor. He's a Gentile writing to a Gentile by the name of Theophilus. Dr. Luke's entire point through the entire Gospel is to show Theophilus who the person of Christ is. And so everything is framed that way. Everything is directed that way. And last week, we saw this beautiful picture of the innocence of Christ. That He's on a journey towards the cross. And by the way, tonight, we've, we've added a, a mosaic cross to represent all of the pieces of God's plan that are fulfilled in the cross. And last week, we saw the innocence of Jesus, that He's blameless in the eyes of God. He's done nothing wrong. He's, he's sinless. He's done nothing to deserve the cross. But He's headed there anyway. And because Christ is innocent, then we can be justified and made righteous on the final day before God. And Jason brilliantly taught this idea of justification. And in the meantime, there's another theological word, That's called sanctification. And so as we're waiting to be justified by Christ, when He says, look, 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 no, 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 like, they're righteous because of me. In the meantime, He's sanctifying us. Making us more like Himself by His Holy Spirit. And so, we saw the innocence of Christ last week. Tonight's entire passage um, is ironic, which many of us, you know, we think of songs that have the words ironic in them and different things. But the entire passage tonight is irony. So let's begin here in verse 13 of Luke chapter 23. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people. And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Now this is interesting, isn't it? That Pilate, a man who's come to Jerusalem during the Passover, because like they don't want some chaotic riot to begin, so they send you know some of the Roman soldiers there, and he sets up uh, he sets up shop for a few days. That Pilate is the man who keeps finding Jesus innocent. He's like, look, there I find no reason to kill this guy. Like you brought him to me, and in Luke chapter twenty-three, verse two, what was their accusation? This guy is subverting our nation. Well, the Greek word subverting there is a word called diastropho. And diastropho, I didn't teach this a couple weeks ago, but the literal meaning of diastropho is to mislead or to turn away from. So the Jews' accusation of Jesus is that he's misleading the nation away from Caesar and towards himself. And obviously they slanted it in a political militant sort of way so that it would get the attention of Pilate. But over and over and over, Pilate keeps saying, like, look, this guy does not seem rebellious, okay? He's been beaten. He's bloody. His people, like, they're, look, no one's going, going against this right now. Like, this guy is not the leader of a rebellion. I think it's interesting, too, in the beginning of verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the, what's the word? The people... Now, over and over and over in the Gospel of Luke, the word people is used. We even saw it in the triumphant entry, which, by the way, the triumphant entry was back in Luke 19. Doesn't that, how how crazy is that, right? We've been journeying through this last week of Christ ever since Luke 19 for four chapters now. But in Luke 19, it says, 
the people laid their cloaks so Jesus could walk on them. People in Luke is always used as a positive word because the people are excited about Christ. But in Luke chapter 23, verse 13, people takes on a little bit, a little bit of a different connotation. And in this case, it means something negative. The people are there. Now, all this is well and good. But friends, do you guys see the irony in this verse? Let's look at it again. Verse 14. And he said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charge against him. Isn't it interesting to anyone else that here is Pontius Pilate saying, Look, like you've brought me this man who you say is inciting a rebellion, which by the way, the second time he says this, he says, uses this word rebellion, different from Luke chapter 23 verse 2, is a Greek word called apostropho. Now, apostropho literally means to cause to change belief or to mislead to change belief. And by the way, the Greek dictionary uses this verse to define the word, so it's clear that that's what it means. So Pilate's saying, look, you brought me this man as one who is like changing people's beliefs. Isn't it ironic to anyone else that Pilate is here and he's saying, you brought me this man that's... that's like supposedly leading a rebellion, and look at this guy. One stands face to face with him, and eye to eye at times because they converse, is the leader of the greatest rebellion of all time. How ironic is it that Pilate has before him a guy who he's finding innocent in the means of political rebellion and stands before him as the Christ, the leader of the greatest rebellion ever. Rebellion in several different ways. Religiously, culturally, and even politically. Did he just say politically? Yes. Even politically. You guys will remember that when, when, when we talked about politics, and we're not just bringing politics up because the vote's coming up. Oh, he's going to tell us who to vote for. I've been waiting for this. No, 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 no. No, no, no. All right? No, no, no. Listen. We taught when we were uh, understanding how to view governments and the authority of government. You remember what we taught? Jesus said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And what we learned from that is we submit to government so as long as the government isn't going against the Word of God. And in that moment, like we're going to put a bunch of marks on your forehead, that would be a little bit different scenario. Okay? When it comes to following the government, and that goes against Christ. Now some of you guys are like, so, so, so. It's not biblical to like leave the park at 10 p.m. at closing time, you know? No, no, no. All right? We're, we're not talking about like, there are certain things that are extra biblical, okay? That we can just, okay, they've set the law, 10 p.m., leave the park, let's go with that, okay? It's completely different. But Jesus' entire message is to go against and change the belief system uh, politically, culturally, religiously, over and over and over. Things like love the poor, bring in the outsider. Things like, look, 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 like Caesar only has power because I've given it to him. And, and even later we'll see a conversation between Jesus and Pilate that gives us this indication like, bro, like do what you do because you're only doing what I'm causing you to do. Over and over, it's this idea of rebellion. Now listen, 
Uh, that's all well and good, and I don't want to get too Star Wars-y or Braveheart on anyone here tonight, you know? Any Star Wars fans here? Let's just point you out, okay? Freaks, all of you, repent and be saved. I'm just kidding, not really though. But, but listen, it's one thing to talk about rebellion, and it's another thing to put some meat and potatoes on that plate. You guys know what I'm saying? Now, rebellion is most often seen in the fruits of rebellion. And the fruit of rebellion is seen when there's an opposition to authority, which is the literal English definition of rebellion. And then there's like people opposing it. Rebellion causes tension. Because people are saying, whoa, 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 like these people in authority, no. So we're going to go against it. And so it causes friction. Well, there's this interesting book called Acts. Interesting also that Dr. Luke wrote, the, wrote that book as well. It's his like, second volume about the early church. It's interesting to me and you that the disciples never face persecution throughout the Gospels. Well, well Jesus told them to you know, kick the dust off their feet. Yeah, he did, but let's be clear. Is that really persecution? Like he told them, look, leave the town if you're not welcome there and move on your way. But something happens in the book of Acts. Something happens in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 4, which is probably 60, 70, 80, however many days, there's 50 days between Passover and Pentecost, we see that Peter and John are put in the jail by the Sadducees because they're preaching a resurrection. What's the problem with that? Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. So they put Peter and uh, John in jail. They don't know what to do with them because the, the crippled girl that they healed is standing with them, so it causes confusion. In Acts chapter 5 or 7, the high priests and the Sadducees put the apostles, Scripture says, in jail. In Acts 6 and 7, there's a man by the name of anyone? Stephen. Stephen is seized. He throws down a money speech to the Sanhedrin, and they kill him. They stone him. One of the first Christian martyrs in Acts chapter 8, right after the stoning of Stephen, the scripture says there's a great persecution that broke out against the church of Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, scripture says, were scattered. In Acts chapter 9, God saves one of the greatest persecutors of the Jews. What's his name? Saul is changed to Paul. And the irony of Paul's life is he was persecuting Christians and will eventually be what? Acts chapter 12, uh, King Herod Agrippa puts James to death by the sword and then grabs Peter and puts him in prison as a means of bullying the early believers. In Acts chapter 14 in Iconium, several Jew and Gentile leaders want to stone Paul and Barnabas. The church is doing great at this point. And I mean that. It's growing, it's multiplying. In Acts chapter 2, and God was saving daily, the, I mean just daily things were happening. People were coming to Christ. Like, but you're like, whoa, no, 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 no. The rebellion was alive and well. In Acts chapter 14, verse 19, some of those same Jews from Antioch and Iconium went to Lystra and won the crowd over. Listen to this. They stoned Paul and dragged him out to the city gates because they thought he was dead. I, I'm not a stoner, okay? And I didn't mean... You guys, I don't stone people, okay? Look, if you're, if you're a professional stoner people, okay, work with me. Like, you know when someone's dead, okay? You know when someone's dead. They stone Paul, and then they drag him out thinking that he's dead, but he's not. He is very much alive. In Acts chapter 16, verse six, uh, 16 in a, while in a Ro- Roman province, 
Paul and Silas heal a slave girl, and then they're seized for going against Roman custom and law. Uh, They're beaten, severely flogged, nearly killed, and put in prison. In Acts chapter 18, verse 12, in Corinth, the Jews make a united attack of Paul and brought him to the court saying, this man is persuading people to worship God, and that's contrary to our law. Oh, to be a Paul. Amen? Yes. In Acts chapter 19, one of my favorite chapters in the book of Acts, we see the great riots in Ephesus. Massive amounts of people all gathered in this huge auditorium. Half of the crowd shouting, great is Artemis, who is this goddess that they worship. And the other half saying, no, great is God. A brilliant picture. Acts 21. Listen, this is hilarious. So Paul's left Jerusalem, which we can all agree is a, is a quagmire of difficulty at this point. Right? He leaves Jerusalem. He comes back to Jerusalem. And within seven days, he's back in prison. You know? He's like, God's calling me to go back and go back to Jerusalem. Seven days, prison. You know, I mean, it just happened so quick. In Acts chapter 23, verse 12, the Jews formed a conspiracy, listen to this, to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. Has anyone ever done that to you before? You know? Can I tell you something? In Acts, the rebellion is alive and well. It's alive and well. There's tension. There's people suffering because people are making a stance for the gospel. And so rebellion is seen. Can I ask you guys a question tonight? Is the rebellion still alive? Is the rebellion still alive? Now, how do we know this? Like, how do we find out whether rebellion is alive or not? For the early Christians... The thing that differentiated them and the culture was Jesus. Jesus was the sole differentiation. He was it. They called the early movement of Christ what? The way, because it reflected a lifestyle. So Christ was the thing that separated believers and everyone else. And that is what caused rebellion because people have a problem with Jesus. Now what happens is, As time has gone along, we've gotten confused about what the rebellion is. We've begun to fight the wrong wars, in the the wrong battles, in the wrong war. And look, when we're talking rebellion here, I don't want any of you to get confused. Because some of you are instantly thinking, so, is he saying in the name of Jesus we need to put a helmet on and just start cutting people up? No. The rebellion of Christ is a rebellion of love. And that's why the Jews missed it. We've already talked about this. They were waiting for a what? They were waiting for a rebellious leader that would come and wipe out the Romans. And so when Jesus came and started saying things like, love the poor, worship me and no one else, love God with all your heart, they had a major problem because he wasn't serving their agenda. When Christ becomes for you and me about an agenda server? Friends, we've missed the complete idea of what a Messiah is. He comes and becomes the differentiation between people and the culture, and that that has become very, very great for you and I. We've argued about things like carpet color, and the world sees us arguing about laws and rules. And so the world starts to think, oh yeah, those Christians... They, they like this rebellion where you all talk the same thing, language. Like, let's be clear. We have jokes among Christians that no one else can even understand, you know? 
We say things to one another that makes us laugh, but no one else laughs. Like, that's kind of problematic, in a sense, you know? I don't have any great examples off the top of my head that won't offend everyone here, but you guys know what I'm saying. Like, we just have, we have these nuances that instantly separate us without Christ being the separation. It's, it's, it's like because we go to a certain church or, or brick and mortar or a certain building or a certain attribute or a certain way that we dance or a certain way that we worship, all these little nuances, Christ is the leader of the greatest rebellion of all time. Not a church, not a culture, not a list of rules, not a phenomenal human leader, none of those things. It's Jesus. And when Jesus is leading rebellion, amazing things happen. Suffering. Anti-religion. Yes! That was the message of Christ. I have not come so that you'll be religious. I've come so that you'll worship me with all your heart. I've not come so that you'll just fit into culture. No, I've come to empower you with the Holy Spirit so that I can say things like, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I have come so that when the government is going against me, then you can take your stand and no matter what the consequence, you know that I as Christ am the differentiation between anything else. Is the rebellion still alive and well? Or have you gotten confused? You were excited about this idea of being countercultural early on. And then as time and complacency has gone, you've gotten completely confused. Your heart's become complacent. Like, seriously, do we even look any different than the world besides our little Christian nuances? When Christ is the separation piece, my friends, the rebellion is on. Because we can't live like the culture. We can't talk like the culture. We can't look. It's complete opposition to the authority of the world. And who's in charge of the world? Ultimately, God, but he's given rule to who? To Satan, which one day he's allowed to live so that he'll crush his head, my friends. The call on you and I's life is to join the rebellion of Christ and make Christ the leader of it. Not some good pastor or not some good small group leader or not some good religious way that we can communicate with one another. Christ. And doesn't that get you excited? It sure does me. In fact, when Pilate says he incited the people to rebellion, Christ, will you do that tonight? Will you incite your people to rebellion? Will you call your people to rebellion? Not some militant coup, but a rebellion of love. What does that look like when a bunch of believers get a rebellion of love in their heart in a city? The city, one by one, widow by widow, homeless by homeless, is changed and affected because it's Christ that's the focus. The call is to join the rebellion. Is it alive and well, my friends? I get frustrated at times when I hear about a second Saturday that has like eight or nine people. I'm just confessing to you guys. Well, well, Mark, you know, we were busy. I know, I'm not saying that we all have to go to every one. But look, we got 200 and some people here. Second Saturday is the thing that God's given us as an opportunity to love on who? The widows and the poor. Now, I'm not saying that every one of those you're going to be called to go to. But I know this for sure. If eight or nine people are showing up from this body, that, that ain't no rebellion. 
That's something that looks like anything else. A rebellion is when people show up and we don't, we don't have enough cars or things to do. And so we have to say, oh God, what are we going to do today? And pretty soon, here come some pieces. There's other moments when I feel like we're in it. Like a part of the rebellion. There's other days I get frustrated. Can we disagree? Oh God, will you incite us to be a part of your rebellion? Will you, God, will you stir our hearts? Will you mold us? Will you make us? The irony of this moment is profound. And I hope and pray that something happens tonight calling each of us to that. Verse 15 says this. You're like, he just spent like 20 minutes on two verses. Are we done? No, we got a long way to go. All right? Verse 15. Some of you are leaving. See ya. Uh, so he's saying like, I've examined people in your presence and no one found... Like, I haven't found any charges against him. Verse 15. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to... What's the word there? Us. Now, I find that interesting, and I did a little bit of the Greek research here on, on the word us. It's like, this is the indication that Pilate's starting to relate to the Jews. The Jews hate Pilate, Pilate hates the Jews. Can I, like, they hate him. He's killed many of them wrongly, okay? Uh, like, there's, there's no love between Pilate and the Jews. But it's like they're starting to relate in some weird way because they're going through an interesting situation. Herod sent him back to us, as you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Herod was looking for what? A circus act. You guys remember? Like he was waiting for like the, you know, Jesus the juggler, you know, to come out, right? Like he wanted Jesus to perform some miracle. And we watched the passion clip when Herod like adjusts his wig, you know, and comes out and he's like trying to coerce Jesus. And he doesn't. And so Herod's like, I don't, like, I don't care. This guy is not the leader of a rebellion. When all the while, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. And then he stands before Pilate. And who's Pilate looking for? Pilate's looking for a guy who looks somewhat like a threat. And he's, like he's standing before and Jesus, and we see, that we don't like know exactly how it looked, but we see Jesus in the Passion, and he's, he's sitting there. Like there's no fist clenched, you know? He doesn't turn into rocky Jesus, you know? It's just, he's just Jesus, there. Taking it. And so Pilate's like, look, I have found no reason to kill this guy. But verse 16 is so interesting to me. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. If you search the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you're looking for ways for Pilate, means for Pilate, to, to punish Jesus, you, you, won't, you can't find it. There is no scriptural reason that Pilate's communicated to punish him. So it leads us to believe the Pilate is punishing Jesus to do what? Appease the, appease the people. So Pilate, even though he has a, this belief system that Jesus is innocent, he says, I am going to punish Christ. Now the punishment here is a method called scourging. And so Pilate wasn't like, take him out and, you know, hit him on the thigh a couple times. The punishment that Pilate is talking about here is taking a whip with several strands, several cords, and on the end of that whip, and if you've seen the passion, this is when he gets tied up around the pole. Pieces of glass rock are on the end of this whip, and it's designed to tear flesh off. So just about the time when you start to be on Pilate's side, you're like, yes, Pilate! You think Jesus is innocent too! Scorch him! All because he wants to appease the people. And now we've landed 
upon a major issue in the Christian church. People that appear innocent and claim to be on the side of Christ, but in the realm of pleasing people, they will give in at any moment, at any time. That, my friends, is called fence-sitting. You have your, your hand in one world and your hand in another. And undecided with Christ is Antichrist. Not the Antichrist, but against Jesus. So if that's where you sit, I can somehow claim Jesus, but then be one of the ones that would say, well, well, well look, Jesus, you know my heart. I'm saying that you're innocent. I mean, you know where I land with you. But just punish him so we can get this out of the way. Just, just, all right, you know, just scourge him. No, 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 that's indifference. And like Jason said last week, Herod and Pilate are on trial trial as well. And Pilate is failing. Because indifference with Christ is not with Christ, my friends. Any of you there? Any of you relate to Pilate? The image of, I can say all the things necessary, but when it comes down to it, I'll need the approval of every man and woman that's around me. Friends, that's not Christianity. The movement, the rebellion of Christ is I could care less what culture says while I'm following Jesus. And, and we recognize the many, many scriptures that say what? That will win the approval of outsiders. Why? Because it's a rebellion of love. If it was a rebellion of the, of the sword, outsiders would hate us, you know? Here comes the Jesus people, they're going to kill someone, you know? That's not happening. What happens when Jesus is leading the rebellion is people begin to say, here comes the Jesus wagon, and they're here to love and to help and encourage. So my friends, the moment you start to side with Pilate, please recognize his heart. Verse 18. With one voice they cried out, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Like, Barabbas, verse 19, had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. He's a great guy. Um, you know, it's like Jesus up against, you know, I mean, pick somebody. Bad, you know. And, and, and the word here, look at this, this is ironic too. The word here for insurrection is stasis. And it literally means a riot or rebellion. So uh, Barabbas, ironically, is the one who started the rebellion politically. And he's even killed someone. But with one voice, they're shouting, release Barabbas. Another ironic thing is that the, the word Barabbas, the name Barabbas, means son of Abba. Son of the Father. So the people are shouting, we'll trade the Messiah for a murderer. And scripture says with one voice they did this. Together, no Messiah gives the murderer. We don't want the guy who claims to be the son of man. Give us the murderer. And, and I think a lot of times, too, people think Barabbas is like this foamy at the mouth uh, guy, you know. He's like got jives spewing out of orifices of his face, you know. Look, there's a good chance Barabbas was a zealot, okay. There's a good chance that Barabbas was just a member of one of the militant groups that were going against uh, pieces of the Jewish sect. So don't picture Barabbas as like this crazy, wild, you know. No, no, no. But there's a great chance he was the leader of one of these things. And so, Jesus, or Barabbas. 
Now, verse 20, um, if there's any verse tonight that I really want you guys to see yourself in, it's verse 20. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. Just, you, get this, you get this image that Pilate is like, Pilate's having to like connect with them. In a weird, he appeals to them, verse 21, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Let me paint this picture for you. In the crowd, you have a whole bunch of people, verse 13 told us, and they're all together, and they're all shouting, crucify him, crucify him, kill the Messiah, and on up, up here somewhere in maybe the, the entrance of the courtyard or the, the kind of the stage of the courtyard area, you have a man named Pilate who in his heart is just wrestling. Do you guys understand? Pilate is just like, just get me out of Jerusalem. Like this is, I don't want this. He doesn't want this, guys. Like he doesn't want to have to deal with this. He's like, I hate being around these Jews. Just get me back to Caesarea. Just get me out of here. And so you've got Pilate up in his heart wrestling with innocence and guilt, punishment or kill. You've got Jesus, the Messiah, standing before all these people. You have the Sanhedrin there, all of these people shouting, yelling. This is a moment of complete tragedy and complete beauty. Because as they shout, crucify him, crucify him, the plan of God takes another step. As the people with hatred yell for the capital punishment of Jesus, we're one step closer to the fulfillment of the plan of God. This is a moment, my friends, of complete tragedy, but absolute beauty. And it's that that we must marvel in at the plan of God. Verse 22, Pilate's clearly getting frustrated. For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished, and then I'm going to release him. Now, there's an interesting um, piece of Jesus' conversation with Pilate, which we get glimpses of in other Gospels. In John chapter 18, uh, there's a, a dialogue between Jesus and Pilate, and Jesus says this to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews, but now my kingdom is from another place. And so throw that conversation somewhere amidst all this. Is Jesus saying, hey, Pilate, I know that you appear to have some semblance of power right now, but my kingdom, my brother, is not of this world. So you go ahead and do what you would do because my kingdom is so much greater, is so much bigger. And this is the, the third and final time when Pilate's just like, this man is innocent. I'm not going to kill. We'll punish him. Sometimes people died from scourging. I'll punish him. We'll work through this. Verse 23. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. When there's a word like insistently demanded next to each other, um, I'm not a Greek scholar, but that means, like, they want him dead. Are you, you, you know, all those of you English majors, insistently demanded, like they are pursuing death. Can you picture the anger and the hatred? They want the Christ dead. And the end of verse 23 says this, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate 
decided to grant their demand. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 27, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but he had instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. And for those of you guys that know the scripture, you know how the people respond. You guys know how they respond? They say, his blood is on us. Can you imagine that moment? His blood is on us. Pilate washes his hands thinking that by some symbolic act that he's somehow innocent now. He washes his hands and says, look, this isn't on me. And finally, the scripture says, their shouts prevail. There's, um, there's power in a mob. There's a mob of people over and over and over in history that prevail because there's power in numbers. And I want to ask you guys a question tonight. I think at the end of the day, we all want to be a part of a cause, don't we? We like causes, whether it's, you know, deaf dogs for Denver, or you know what I mean? Like cancer research, whatever it is. Like we like causes. And what's interesting to me is like the, the peace of the people found in this piece of Luke says that there's like a crowd that's just wrapped up in the cause of killing Christ here. They're excited because they have a cause. And so the mob is able to come together and there may even be some confusion amidst them. Like what, what even is this about? But they feel unified because they have a cause. It's like, yeah, let's do this together. Like I don't even, who is this guy up here? Crucify him, crucify him. The mob is powerful when they have a cause. Let me ask you this. Is the cause of Christ enough? I, I, fear, I fear that we're trying to all make our own towers of Babel. For those of you guys that don't know the story, uh, there's this, a great story in Genesis that we taught mm, a couple years ago as these individuals are trying to like, make this tower that will one day reach God. Like we do with righteousness, I feel like with our causes, we think that somehow if we're a part of enough good causes then we'll be able to like, God will be like, hey, I saw that cancer research, you know, that run that you did. Brilliant, right? Is Mark saying cancer research is bad? No, okay? Cancer research is great. We need it. It's awesome. But I'm saying if, like, if that's your means of the cause of Christ to get to the cause of Christ, you're not seeing it correctly. That's why I ask, is the cause of Christ enough? And then every other cause comes underneath that, whatever He would call you to do. But the main cause of the mob that should be the church is to sit back and say, God, we are simply about your glory as a mob. What if that became the mob's cry? Not like, hey, hey like, come over here and look like us and be a part of like, the trendy church thing, you know? And we put our hands in our pockets like this and do this little sway and it's awesome. And so when people come in, they feel like they have to adhere to that. And if they, if they don't do that, then they're not a part of the cool thing. What happens if we say, no, 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 our only cause, our only hope is the things of Christ. And anything that comes out of that is His plan and His power and His will. And so then we get to experience the blessing of the mob that is the church. Because the mob with Christ behind it, my friends, is a powerful agent, amen? The masses with the rebellious leader, Christ, 
steering the ship is a powerful ship. A powerful ship. What would, what, would, what would begin to happen if we just begin to saw the inkling of that happen? If we just began to saw the poor really loved in this, in this community? We're loving on them, yes, but in a rebellious way. In a way that none of us were satisfied until the cause of Christ was dealt with fully. Verse 25. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Which, let's just end with irony there, shall we? Did you guys see the last words there? And he surrendered Jesus to their will. I'm pretty sure not, you know? Like, I'm pretty sure there was no surrendering of Jesus at any time to anyone else's will except the Father. So how better to finish an ironic passage with some huge irony? No, no, you don't understand, Pilate. Uh, No, no, no. you don't understand Sanhedrin. People who are there, none of you understand. He is the Messiah. He is the leader of rebellion. He is the one who's going to die. He is the one who's going to call people. He is the one who's going to save. And so he's surrendered to the Father's will, and that's why it seems like you're surrendering him to some other will. Friends, is the rebellion still alive and well? Or has it gotten blurred? Do we even know what the rebellion is anymore? You signed up for something initially. A great cause, the cause of Christ. Where you found true fulfillment in His grace and His faithfulness. But now it's just muddied. By all kinds of other Christian stuff. What happens if tonight things get clearer? What happens if tonight the rebellion all of a sudden takes on new meaning? What happens if tonight we understand that religion must die? That religion is what we at Matthias' lot are against. We don't like religion. We hate anything that looks like religion. Anything that would trap Jesus in this means of, I can, I can do a bunch of rules and then somehow get to Christ. No, no, we're anti-religion here at Matthias. We're pro-Jesus. Because I think if you studied the Gospels, you would see that Jesus was very... uh, There was a lot of tension between him and the religious leaders. What if culturally we started saying, you know what, Um, here's the thing. Like, this world has nothing for us. And so I will follow none of you. I will follow you. What if that happened in a massive way? What if our hearts were stirred for rebellion? What if politically... Jamont and Jared Corzine are going to travel to Laos in a month and a week. That's how we do it here, right? We decide we're going to go to Laos and people have about three weeks to prepare. We got a call from Lloyd, uh, actually an email, okay? We got an email from Lloyd a few weeks ago. He said, hey, uh, can, do you know anyone that can build a, a database on computers? And in, you know, instantly I thought of Jamont because he's phenomenal with computers. So I emailed Lloyd. I you know, didn't really even ask Jeremy. I was like, hey, uh, yeah, we got a guy. He'll, he'll, he's there. You know, no problem. He's there. So Lloyd emailed back and, and he said, okay, he needs to have experience in database. And so I texted, Jeremy, do you have any experience with database? No. He's there, man. We'll figure it out. You know, you needed a travel mate. And so Jared's going to be going to work. So, so excited. Political rebellion because in Laos it's illegal, my friends, to be a believer. What Lloyd is doing is illegal, okay? 
And so we're sending two missionaries from this church into a political scene where what they're doing is rebellious. But it's in the name of Jesus. And so politically, we say praise be to God. And look, their lives, I mean, there's dicey pieces. We, we don't know yet if they're going to be smuggling Bibles or what that's going to look like. But that's what it looks like to rebel against a political system. It's like, hey, hey, those people need to hear about Christ. And we partner with the Laopuan people. So, so Jared and Jamont, they're going to go. And you're going to be hearing a lot more about the trip. We're going to be praying for them and sending them out. It's going to be awesome. What does it look like for a church to stop seeing rebellion as something that's been blurred and say, Oh, Christ. Will you stir up our hearts? Will you incite rebellion in your church again to go against the cultural, religious, and political systems of this world? Oh God, will you call us to rebel? I'm tired of looking like the world. Oh God, would you call us to rebel? And in that moment of great rebellion, as Jesus goes on the cross, we have a phenomenal example in the person of Christ of what the rebellion of love looks like. Sacrifice. Are you ready to sacrifice, church? Your own life and will and cause for the greater glory of the will, cause of Christ. That is the rebellion of love. Let's pray. God, I pray that um, as we see a bunch of hatred-filled people shout, crucify him, crucify him, that we don't miss the moment to all of the beauty of your plan that would send your son to the earth humbly in obedience to you to sacrifice his life in obedience to you that a bunch of sinners like us would get to reap the benefits. God, I ask that the church will become a mob of rebellious believers with the cause of Christ deeply on our hearts, with the glory of the Father on our minds. Father, will you draw us to that place where anything that looks religious, anything that looks like this world, anything that politically would go against you will cause us to love and serve you all the more. Father, incite your people with great passion towards rebellion tonight and may the church become an army empowered by your spirit for your glory and your name's sake let's stand and respond to the power of the cross